This is Chip in Durham, Erica in Edmonton, and Shannon in Durham. And welcome to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 76, Lines of Communication. You know, before we, uh, before we watched this episode last night, I was, was trying to remember, okay, what, what, what episode are we watching next? And Stephen, of course, was like, I have no idea. And I was like, uh, looking at my calendar, I said, lines <laughs> of communication. And he just made the most dismissive sound I have ever heard in my entire <laughs> life. It's like, it's called that, huh? He just turned and he just looked at me and said, which book of generic buzzwords does JMS use to select episode titles? It was, it was quite a moment. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, so He's got a point. He, he does. He, he totally has a point. That is the most dull episode title that we've had in quite a while. And yet it's... It's a little deceptive because there's a lot of stuff that happens in this episode. I think it's a – this is definitely one of those that m- moves the plot along, sets the plot up, sometimes not at all subtly. But, you know, you can t- you can tell that pieces are being put into position for the next few episodes, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. It's exciting. There's there's a lot going on. And I mean, it's not that Lines of Communication is an incorrect title for this story. It's just so gosh darn generic. Mm-hmm. It's just gosh darn boring. <laughs> Let's just get it right out there. Yeah. It's a boring episode title. JMS, you should be ashamed of yourself. Well, I wouldn't go that but far. But he's hiding how good the episode is. Oh, I see. He's being sneaky. I'll, I'll accept that headcanon. <laughs> Um, so I'm, I'm hearing two votes here for the quality of the episode. Y'all liked it a lot, huh? So much so that I took like very few notes in comparison to sometimes when I find myself being engrossed by the episode, I'm just like, screw the notes. I'm watching this stuff. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. In my case, I, I had forgotten the initial contact with the Drock somehow and had forgotten just how kick-ass um i mean you know this is like almost severed dreams level kick-ass delen again and i had had forgotten that this little bit was there and i was reveling in it mm-hmm. um and i also liked the fact that jms was not afraid to throw every single shade of gray in the book at uh the mars situation and uh, come on we had sheridan and ivanova i mean <laughs> you, you can never go wrong when those two are on screen you're here so wow so yeah i enjoyed it Lots of unbridled appreciation, and I f- have the strangest feeling that I'm going to be the outnumbered grump in the world. Not that I, not that I hated this episode at all, mm-hmm. but um, I, I think that there's some execution stuff here that got on my nerves through this, even as I was mm-hmm. thoroughly enjoying what was happening. How things were happening was a little – well, we'll get into that. We'll get yeah. into that, but B5. It's all about the characters. It's all about the plot. It's all about the really, really big story and the sort of the grandiosity of it all. There are possibly very few episodes that are so excellent standalone that you 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 just hand them to somebody off the street and say, "Watch this one. It'll you'll you'll have a religious science fiction experience." And just move on and never and never see this again. Babylon Five depends so much on the big arc and the big character. Well, arcs. It, yeah, it's a a novel for television. JMS was delving into new territory when he came up with this. So th- yeah. <laughs> th- so for me, this chapter makes a lot of great things 
possible. And yet I was just sort of sitting here going, really? You used that dialogue? You, you, you used a line, is this how you treat all your former lovers? You actually used that line in okay. this episode? That, that was a little, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there were a few moments like that. But. Um, I don't know. I, the, the glory of her snarling yes back at him mm-hmm. kind of made See, that yeah, for me. <laughs> I liked the response. I, the line itself, I mean, if you would have said exes, is that, I mean, I feel like that was a word that we were, we were using in the 90s. You know, is this how you treat all your exes? Then, then it would have felt a little bit more. But the thing is, that actor who gave that line, he used to play Damien Grimaldi on As the World Turns. So I really didn't have a problem with him uttering kind huh. of ridiculous, over-the-top melodramatic lines. So... I was still okay with it. Okay, well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I now that I'm thinking about the episode in its entirety, I'm also thinking, you know, is JMS trying to not exactly foreshadowing because I don't think anything comes of it, but you know, l- look at what Stephen does by the end of the episode. <laughs> so okay. I don't know. Well, I'm just saying that I think JMS worked very, very hard on this script. I think he worked really, really hard on this script. He tried really hard. And there are some great lines in this script, and there are some great moments in this script, but there are also some things that just just fall utterly flat for me. And almost, you're trying too hard. I don't know. But we'll get into that when we get into the nuts and bolts. Uh, here's, the, here's the episode reset for you. If you're listening to the podcast, but you haven't actually watched the episode in a while, here's what you need to know. Following the Shadow War, Babylon 5 and the Earth government have turned their attention to each other. Earth started a propaganda war, mobilizing public support for an attack on B5, and they've also choked off supplies to the station. Sheridan has started making plans to take on President Clark. Dr. Franklin and Marcus have smuggled themselves to Mars to build alliances with the Mars Resistance, and while they were there, they discovered alien infiltration within. Meanwhile, Sheridan's security chief has quit, accusing him of building a cult of personality. So, in lines of communication... Delenn finds out that things are getting really bad at home, with the worker, warrior, and religious castes opposing each other with fatal passive aggression. One religious caste leader, Pharrell, makes an alliance with a newly introduced race, the Drak, to protect the religious caste from the warrior caste. Turns out, the Drak were servants of the Shadows and are now looking for revenge after the destruction of Zahadum. When the Drak encounter Delin, they try to take her out, and Delin, not to put too fine a point on it, kicks their collective ass. Meanwhile, Dr. Franklin and Marcus cement their alliance with the Mars Resistance and, in Franklin's case, with the Mars Resistance leader. Sheridan cajoles Ivanova into leading Babylon 5's counter-propaganda effort, and Delin decides that she and Sheridan need to temporarily separate to deal with the impending wars at their homes. And that was lines of communication. Things happened, things blew up, things prepared to happen. This one was directed by John Flynn III. Um, Mm -hmm. As a third myself, I uh, want to give support (laughs) to my uh, suffix kinsman here. But, you know, he's he's a director of photography and it looks great in some places, but, um, you know, it's it's competently directed, but it's not a uh, it's not an actor's tour de force. I don't think that that's his focus. Yeah, it's it's very, very well directed from all of the other standpoints. I mean, I thought the acting was 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 quite good. It was fine. But I 
I didn't feel like it was, yeah, directed from an acting standpoint. Stephen actually, at the, during the cold open, he kind of leaned over and said, "Ooh, my uh, my Vadar is tingling." He was he was oh, hoping it was wow. Mike Vahar, and it wasn't. But uh, but he he was actually giving the screen thumbs ups at uh, at a couple of different times because of certain you know directorial moves or you know camera adjustments, reveals of, of characters and stuff. So he was really impressed by the direction. But that's the kind of direction that he's always watching for as opposed to just just the uh, the acting side. Yeah, I think this is uh, Flynn's third or fourth episode that he's directed, mm-hmm. something like that. And yeah, I agree. It, it wasn't somewhere where the director was pulling strong acting from the actors, but on, on the other hand, at least for most of the main actors, they know these characters by now. Um, they know what to do. And um, I think in general did a really good job with what the script gave them. Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's a little situational. Uh, Sheridan's a little cornball, I think. Uh, mm. when oh, he walks a little? In, uh, yeah. When he wakes Ivanova up, you know, that's kind of broadly <laughs> played. And that's not that doesn't feel like it's in his sweet spot. But he's he's done that sort of thing successfully before. Um, when that seems to be his sort of shiny new toy idea you know something mm-hmm. i think we've seen him do this sort of thing before when he gets an idea that's not necessarily related to actual battle tactics or or fighting um mm-hmm. that he's just so enthusiastic about it he's he's got to share that yeah. that's something we've seen sheridan do before yeah um another another one of those is uh i thought that uh, richard biggs's delivery in the cold open with the video message lost lamb this is lost lamb you know <laughs> too serious too on the nose but when he and number one are talking slash flirting at each other after the big <laughs> meeting uh mm-hmm. rick biggs is so on point there it's amazing i i, I think you're right the acting strengths come from the actors themselves. They're not getting mm-hmm. augmented or helped by the direction. Whereas on mm-hmm. the other hand, just as Stephen pointed out, with, uh, with John Flynn being the director of photography, he knows what he wants to see. So he can he's really good at putting the camera in the right place and doing, you know, movements to reveal characters when they're about to do something or, you know, all, all of that kind of, of technical stuff was was really on point. And I mean, he was he was the DOP for this very episode. So he, he had both jobs and did mm-hmm. both of those very well. Well, can we uh, let's let's start with Mars. It's basically an episode about a meeting. We do have uh, some internal conflict when we hear about a hotel bombing and it's a chance for Marjorie Monaghan as number one to really display her chops and this is this is why she should have had first billing in the credits in the previous episode because god damn it she's so good (laughs) but here's one of the things that we've talked about earlier in uh, the podcast our good guys really need to be good guys in JMS's mm-hmm. world. They really need to be good guys. So we have some demonstrations of shades of gray among the Mars resistance with the hotel bombing that takes out civilians as co- collateral damage. But this is just appalling to number one, and she reins the guy in. She doesn't fire him, um, you know, so there is some gray there. But the whole point is that we're the good guys. We don't do bad things in the service of the in the service of the truth and freedom and all this other stuff the gray is know. the gray is kind of the, the the gray is kind of muted 
I'm not completely there with you on that because I think, and I think this is shows up in the dialogue too. It's not just that she doesn't want civilians harmed. It's that she knows just how much worse it's going to make things. Mm-hmm. So I think she's thinking, you know, tactically, just as much as she might be thinking morally, more so tactically, I think, frankly. So uh, I'm not completely there with you. I mean, yes, I agree that JMS is doing his best to position the Babylon Five people as, yes, the good guys who never make mistakes or when they do, they fix it. But in this particular instance, um, I think there's a little more to it. Yeah, her argument when she's yelling at him does seem more about their image than about the the killing of <laughs> the killing of the innocent civilians. Yeah, so. yeah, but it still feels to me like the Sheridan looking at the screen going get to the life pods thing. It, I'm I'm comparing this to the opening of Rogue One and the character Cassian Andor, played by Diego Luna, who is a rebel spy. They run into they run into Imperial troops and Andor's contact there is really freaking out as and is a liability and Andor just shoots the guy just you know boom and Rogue One does such a good job of portraying shades of gray and making the rebels seem morally ambiguous until they sort of get towards the end sort of commit to the cause and um and sort of become the rebel alliance that we saw in the original trilogy I'm watching the stuff on Mars mm-hmm. And I'm kind of wishing that JMS let the characters in the Mars Resistance and number one and, frankly, Franklin and Marcus seem a little dirtier. But wouldn't it be – isn't it a little late for that? I mean, he's – we're already in season four at this point, And if he suddenly starts making things gray in a show that has very – much been about our heroes being heroic heroes i don't know it just to me it seems like that would be a weird tonal shift for for this point for any point in the story really yeah fairly early maybe maybe the issue is simply that you know you're introducing an underground resistance a guerrilla underground movement uh where there is going to be violence there is going to be you know hits and all that other stuff and Maybe that's just an uncomfortable fit with the sort of space opera heroics that we've had up to this point. Right. Well, I mean, it seemed to me like most of the Mars resistance or, you know, whoever all of those people were, that many of them didn't seem like they had a problem with uh, attacking civilian targets. They didn't seem particularly happy with the idea that they should have to stop doing that. I think that, number one, perhaps the reason that she's in power is because she understands the the ramifications of that type of act. And somebody who was really gung-ho about about hitting civilian targets and had who had been doing more of that would not have lasted very long as a leader because they would have gotten, you know, chopped down by somebody or other. So I, I still feel like there's plenty of plenty of gray area and and unease with this alliance here because the Mars resistance from what I've seen here, just because number one doesn't want them to do the uh, the nasty things doesn't mean, you know, like Mr. I don't remember the character's name, but the Damien Grimaldi from uh, As the World Turns. Philippe. He, Philippe, that was his name. Yes. But yeah, he really, like, not only did he do it, but he just seemed to have no remorse whatsoever over it. And I, it, I got the impression he was not alone in that. Well, you've got a good point there. And also to both of your points, uh, you know, they weren't big fans of Sheridan down there. Yeah. 
And for a, for, for a good reason. Sheridan and uh, Sinclair was actually part of it, too. They met uh, during all of this. The Mars riots, the food riots, uh, when they basically helped put down an insurrection. That would not endear Sheridan to these folks, and they made a point of that. And I think I, just one thing that occurred to me while you guys were talking, uh, are we simply dealing with also the fact that uh, this show was written 20-odd years ago, and you know, since then, history has shifted, history has changed, and we just expect things to be messier because you know we, we look for things that reflect people in real life or real motivations um, people that we oh thi- god Kiefer Sutherland as Sheridan oh god what I'm just imagining because you know 24 and uh, the whole anti-terrorist you know doing the nasty things to keep us safe kind of thing that is much more prevalent than it was back then yeah so I think that True. you know we may be looking at it because we are used to stories that dig into that more these days than we might have um, in the 90s Mm-hmm. Good point. Good point. Um, one interesting thing that happens uh, to sort of wrap up the Mars conversation is that uh, Franklin makes the promise that Sheridan will support Mars independence. Philippe says, yeah, man, if I say I'll sprout wings and fly, will you believe that? And uh, Franklin responds, if Sheridan says it, I'll ask him to go pick me up a bagel. Mm-hmm. Franklin demonstrates a whole lot of of commitment in and belief in John Sheridan, the person. And as he delivers that line, I'm suddenly thinking about what Garibaldi's been saying in the last couple of episodes. <laughs> um, again, I'm not totally there with you on that. I, I, I made a note of that because to me, it felt like we haven't seen this Dr. Franklin in a long time. He's been too busy trying to keep other people alive and then try to keep himself alive and uh, deal with his own personal issues. But the season one, season two, Franklin, when he believes in something, he supports and he argues and he is not going to let it go until he has had the chance to deliver his side. This felt to me like uh, kind of like season one, season two, Franklin. Um, being that passionate, being that driven uh, to get his message through, to make all of his points. And I loved that scene. I thought Richard Biggs was doing great with that. Uh, I really felt the emotions he was trying to convey as he did it. So that that's what I felt seeing that scene. And I think, I think ascribing that actual belief to him when he was using that as you know, as a, a, a rhetorical device to convince people to come around to his side is maybe not the maybe not the most fair thing to do. Uh, but I also think that he's you know he's got a good reason for for believing that if, if he does uh, simply because we, you know we we have seen Captain Sheridan promise a lot of things and follow through on them. You know he. Not not single handedly, double handedly, because it was him and Delenn. Um, the two of them came together to to take down the the biggest threat that their galaxy has ever seen. So I I don't have a problem with him being happy following along with Sheridan and defending him, especially like I said, in front of a, a room full of people that he basically needs to get on side, or they're kind of all going to be screwed. Oh, I did leave out one bit of the Mars development. And that was number one in Franklin. 
Yeah. <laughs> Do we call that Nanklin or oh, uh, don't. phone? I'm don't. trying to, I, I don't know how these shippers. that. I hate that, that shippers do that now. Ugh. We used to come up with real names, you know, like actual phrases that, that stood for it. We didn't do this name combining crap. Anyway. I, I hey, take I'm your all, word for I'm it. all for name combining if it makes it quicker and easier to say. I don't want to say a whole friggin' phrase. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your words for it. Anyway, um, definite chemistry there. Definitely, definite chemistry between the actors and between the characters. Uh, loads of fun. And um, Marcus has some of the JMS monologuing too much uh, stuff. Touch passion when it calls your name stuff is not a line that anybody would say in reality, even. Oh, it is. It absolutely is. This is Marcus. I loved that line <laughs> so much. That sounded exactly like something that the sort of, you know, the lonely swashbuckly virgin would absolutely say. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You're, 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 all right. All right. I'll, I'll concede the point. I'll concede the point. <laughs> and, and, and then, and then, Passion did call Stephen's name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Shannon has a confession to make. I will not. All right, then. Leave me alone. <laughs> then I will. She didn't get the pike gag until we watched it this last time. <laughs> oh, that's delightfully innocent of you. Do I have to edit this out? I've, no, I just feel like we need to say no more. I've lost my wife. <laughs> actually you know honestly actually, i never hang did on. either actually i i think i have lost her shannon you there yes i'm here <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no seriously i i never got that either this is the first time i noticed that and i was just like oh my goodness <laughs> thank you and i was i was i was fully an adult the last like you know actually pretty much every time i've watched this show i don't know it, it seems like i should have but Yep. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's something Marcus does. He plays with that pike when he's bored. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move right along there. Um, <laughs> Lols. Okay, uh, so that was that. Uh, let's take a quick side trip to the voice of the resistance. I said a couple of episodes ago, where the heck is Sheridan's public information officer in all of this? Apparently, he doesn't have one. Apparently, Mm -hmm. uh, that sort of communications counseling doesn't exist on the space station in the 23rd century. So anyway, he finally gets the bright idea that maybe we should talk back. Um, And I'm just sitting here like, oh, my God, what a concept. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So I was I, I was a little less than impressed with the with with that because um, you know he, he, he's talking about the French resistance and the, all this stuff and this is this is ah uh, <laughs> it's not you, it's not new you guys it's not you, a new idea you guys know where I'm coming from with this I'll shut up and let you two weigh in no I I I agree but the fact that they established Babylon Five. Four years ago, without anything like that, which yes seems seems strange to us, seems strange to us here and now, but I, I I don't know. Maybe it was an oversight. Maybe it was just that that the the you know I don't know if the military had public information officers that were um, enough in the spotlight that you know somebody writing about a future military would have thought <laughs> would have thought to put that sort of thing in uh, when the 90s rolled around but the fact that it was established that way early on meant that 
that I'm fine with the fact that it still doesn't exist. Like I, I have, I've bought into the reality of Babylon 5 without that kind of a role. And the coming to it late, yes, you know, I can give it a little bit of an eye roll, but I'm fine with it. And the the execution of that and the the cornballness, as you as you mentioned, was some of my favorite bits of this whole episode. I love seeing nearly manic Sheridan. And I think it's something we haven't seen for a long time when he gets really like just little kid excited about something. It's it's sort of the wide eyed puppy that we had when he first came to the station that I was just so like, oh, about he's he he. He's so excited that one of my favorite directorial bits, and I don't know if this is directing or writing, uh, was the fact that when he comes up with that idea, there are no lines. He turns off the TV, he turns around and he's all grumpy and disgusted. And then suddenly you can see the look on his face change as he comes up with an idea. And so often they will put another character in that room so that the character can say, oh! I've got it. I've got an idea. Mm. And then, you know, and then he mm. can walk off and you can cut to the next scene with a little bit of uh, a little bit of um, like, oh, what's going to happen? But this time, no, it, they they were they, he trusted the actor to cover it. And he did. And then mm-hmm. and then him waking up Ivanova and they're back and forth and him just like practically dancing around the war room. And it was all wonderful. And I loved it. So I, I'm going to give the uh, give the whole premise of it a pass simply because I liked watching it happen on screen so much. Uh, yeah, pretty much what Erica said, uh, the, the fact that they were able to um, convey it like, like that without putting a lampshade on it. And for uh, Sheridan to, of course, you know, immediately pick Ivanova, who is just trying to figure out why me that, you know, she she does not yet see. Um, that she that she can be good at this. So she's, of course, you know, tr- shaking her head. It's like, yeah, yes, oh, Captain, my captain. You, you know, I'm going to do what you say. But, you know, really? <laughs> um, <laughs> my favorite part of that, too, is when he's when he's saying, you know, you already did it. And she's like, I hated it. And he goes, you were great at right. it. And in my head, I'm just going, thanks, dad. Like, it was the most dad line I've <laughs> yes, ever seen him do. Yes. <laughs> oh, but it's followed by one of the best lines in the show. You have a face people trust. I'd rather have a face people fear. Oh, yeah. That's yes. beautiful. <sighs> yeah. yeah. And then we'll get to it in a minute. But just, yeah, between between number one, you know, just like physically taking down the guy she's mad at uh, to prove her leadership. And then, you know, Ivanova's line like that. And we'll get to Delenn in a minute. This episode just totally rocked as far as showing strong women, mm-hmm. full agency, uh, taking care of their business. Here, here. Well, that seems like a good segue to what I think is the best part of the episode, and that's the Drock subplot with Delin fully in charge. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Any arguments that that's really the best part of the show this this time around? It's definitely the, the strongest, for sure. She's a real warrior in this one. It's 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 so good. It's so good. And uh, Lanier, maybe maybe his jaws just jutted out a little bit too much in some of these shots. But you know, they're mean in business. This is not shrinking flower helping my husband Delin in any way. Um, Another great line in this episode. It pleases me that you care for what I have become, but never forget who I was, what I am, and what I can do. Pair that with at the end of the episode uh, when Sheridan asked if it would make any difference if he asked Delin to stay, stay, and her response is, "Would you want it to make a difference?" Mm-hmm. And which is which is just mm-hmm. perfect. So, this is a big, big Delin episode, and it makes me very happy. 
It is. Although when she said that line about never forget what I was, what I can do, all that, Stephen just goes, a liar, a liar, a liar who lies. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like... Uh, okay, yeah, you're right, but shush, that's not the point right now. Shush. <laughs> <laughs> mm. uh, oh, so, new bad guys. Mm-hmm. Cool-looking bad guys. I mean, even even with old effects, I thought that that Draka Emissary guy who looked like he was just not quite connected fully to this universe, uh, that was... That was legitimately chilling, just the way that the movement happened. And, and Stephen was really impressed with the the complexity of, of what it must have taken to put that shot together because it looked like, you know, he was against green screen and the people that were interacting with him were probably against green screen as well. Um, but anyway, it was just, yeah, I thought that was very effective. I don't know. Maybe, maybe most people are turning up their nose at that, but for me, it worked. Well, here's the thing. I don't think it was green screen at all because really as uh, as is, there's a there's a comment on the lurkers guide about it. They didn't care for the mask props mm-hmm. and they thought they didn't think that the mm-hmm. costume looked good enough to suit them. So they did all of the other stuff to this to the to, to the dude in post. Wow. After the fact. Whoa. That must have been crazy expensive at the time. But it's but it's like art by accident. Uh the the (laughs) mask looks cheap, the costume doesn't look great. Let's just weird up this dude. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, the only thing that bothered me about it is um I was getting the impression that the Drock character was like blind, you know, not just trying to feel his way around like not quite of this universe kind of thing, but just genuinely, you know, kind of blind. And it bothered me when, at least when it was walking down the hall, once, you know, the, the, once the guy's stationary and talking with Delenn, uh, it got better for me. But yeah, I don't deny that it was super creepy looking. Mm-hmm. And then we find out that these are not just rando bad guys, but that they have a connection. So Pharrell comes to Delenn there's a problem with the warrior caste targeting the religious caste. Things are going to hell in a handbasket. He needs to, to uh, take action. He lures Delin into a negotiation at gunpoint, whatever, with the Drock because he thinks that the Drock will help protect the religious caste from the warrior caste because they don't have any home a home anymore. That'll be the, the trade-off. Somehow, Lanier figures out where that home was and i love that moment when he just mm-hmm. mouths and does not say mm-hmm. the word zahadum right um and then things get things get heavy really really quickly mm-hmm. yeah so this whole i really loved the construction of this whole subplot in the story of you know something the mystery intrigue of it of delen or lanier somebody twigging something just in time to try and prevent what's going to happen next or get out of the way. Um, you know, the fact that they respond first in Minbari instead of the interlac that Lanier provides them, which makes Dylan realize, okay, this was a trap. 
the as you said, Lanier realizing and putting the pieces together that the Drock apparently were uh, part of the Shadows Alliance. Um, and then, you know, a few minutes later, when the Drock, you know, calls her by name or somebody calls her, somebody calls her by name and the Drock, she realizes that Pharrell does, okay. Pharrell does. And, and then the, and the Drock and realizes, OK, we've got one of the two people we hate most in the galaxy right here and we can do something about it. All of that leading up to a kick-ass battle sequence, um, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. Just like I said, this <laughs> encapsulated bit of story was so well crafted, in my opinion, and um, the way it unfolded really worked for me. Yeah, I loved it. And actually, this was uh, this held the one of the points that Stephen liked the most in the directing. The the point where they realize, as, as Shannon just said, that the message is being sent in Mimbari, which I appreciate. I kind of had a little internal laugh that they had to tell us that as the audience mm-hmm. because we never know when they're speaking Mimbari and when they're speaking. Like, I mean, the, the, the show's a little bit fuzzy with that. Sometimes we know they're speaking Mimbari because they're speaking Mimbari and then there are subtitles so we can see what right. they're actually saying. In this case, there's no reason for them to be speaking English, but it would be kind of annoying for a 1990s television audience to have to watch that happening. You know, Game of Thrones was still many years away so so they're they're speaking in in what we hear is english but for them is supposed to be minbari so they have to say no 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 it's coming through in minbari mm-hmm. uh, so that was that was a little bit delightful but then you get delen saying oh that means that they must have had contact with and the camera pans over to reveal the gun pointed at her it was just it was it was very elegantly done from a stagecraft and filming standpoint and and I did not surprise surprise I didn't remember this all that well so I had forgotten like I I, I knew that it was the Drock uh and that they were coming into the story here and that that's that's the name of these these weird things but I did not remember that they had had contact with one of the Mimbari people before Mm -hmm. and that that's how it all came about so for me it was I had that that same delicious moment of realization that I have probably every other time I've watched this episode and went oh my god he's in on it why would he do that and then he goes through and I I appreciate that that it was one of those those moments where it was a character who just really wanted to do the right thing and was willing to sort of sacrifice himself in order to get that done. Because you got to figure that even if they make a deal with this new species, this dude's going to jail um, mm-hmm. for for the way that he the way that he acted. And he you know he has a real heartbreaking story about his his family. And wow, what a little view into Minbari culture to oh, see that yeah, sure. Yeah. Minbari don't kill other people. But Minbari, Minbari will sure as hell arrange it if out, they feel like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As long as it's, you know, something else like well, I, you know, I may have set you here on the railroad tracks, but it was the train that actually killed you, you know, that sort of a thing. And and yeah, that's that is cold. So I can I can understand his motivation. And I think for a split second, I was wondering, OK, why doesn't he realize that these are bad guys like this guy just seems so evil. And then I was like, ah, ah, that's space racism, racism talking. <laughs> like, I'm sure there are lots of races, you know, probably the Pacmara didn't look particularly, you know, happy, cheery, friendly to humans the first time they saw them. But, you know, they're just good old Pacmara. So I, yeah, I feel like Mimbari have what do you run know? into. Yeah, you, you know, Mimbari have run into a lot of cultures, so there was no reason for him to take a, an immediately racist view against this uh, this other person 
thing, whatever, that he'd spoken to before. <laughs> and it does, on the other hand, make sense for Delenn to have had sort of a feeling because she's had so much contact with the shadows. So it would it follows that she would kind of get a, the same sort of vibe off of someone who had worked so closely with the shadows and lived on Zaha Doom. So I, I really, really also loved that scene where you see Lanier and her just like, you know, kind of exchanging looks and, and then it, you know, comes over me like, Oh, of course they've lost their home too. We know where that was. And yeah, the way that it all played out was, was just really solid. And then, you know, of course, yeah, kick-ass battle scene, which I'm not the biggest on battle sequences, but I am when I get to see shots of Delenn being super kick-ass in the middle of them. Yeah. Um, she and Lanier are full-on warriors in this episode. Not warrior cast, but mm-hmm. warriors. And, uh, right. you know, end this is just mm-hmm. really, really, really strong. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I was I, I was trying to decide. I mean, we, we have seen Delenn be this uh, kick-ass and this much of a ferocious leader before, but... There was a little bit of something about the fact that, you know, Lanier is like, okay, are we going back to Babylon 5? Oh, hell no. We're going to clean this up. That felt a little bit mm-hmm. like Sheridan rubbing off on her a bit. You know, that not not <laughs> just that she is a good tactician, not just that she can command in battle, um, but to, you know, like turn around and, you know, yes, I've punched him in the mouth, but pardon me, we're going to take his head off too. That that felt a little bit like, um, yeah, yeah. Like she picked up some of some of Sheridan's um, attitudes over the years. I hadn't thought about that, but it did. It, the decision struck me as sort of surprising and not out of character, but just surprising mm-hmm. uh, at first because everything that she has done in the past has has been defensive maneuvers. Right. I mean, she's she's the religious cast, and when she was being when she was being a badass before, it was to defend right. Babylon 5. Right. In this case, they're they're away. All of their people who are still alive are safe. And sure, you could spin it that these ships are going to, you know, go on and continue to to, to raid and hurt other people so that, that, you know, yeah, you're defending future people. But that... that doesn't completely fly in the moment with the way that she expresses it this to me seemed a little bit more like an act of revenge Mm -hmm. especially because she prefaces it by saying you know they destroyed white star 16 Mm -hmm. (laughs) like like oh okay yeah she is just pissed off and uh she wants to get them back which i felt was was really interesting and cool it's it's really interesting and cool especially since not a few minutes earlier in the episode, she invoked the memory of Ducat and talked about not making that mistake again. Mm-hmm. So the, the oh, you're right. Yeah. So sort of sort yeah. of the message of the episode when she does that is this is not a mistake. This is justice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stephen actually after the fight was over, Stephen said that was pretty badass. Although she has a tendency to start wars when she's angry. That's twice now. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. Well. Well, to be fair, uh, they. To be fair, the Drock would have come back to meet them theoretically in a week if they hadn't mm-hmm. figured out who they were dealing with, and that was yeah. when uh, that that was when good behavior just sort of stopped. So, so this is That's this true. is a Greedo situation. She fired because <laughs> Greedo would have fired first. <laughs> yes, there you yes. go. Okay, I'll take it. Uh, one last point about this, you know. The the Drock is the foreground conflict, but the background conflict is what's going on on Minbar. And yeah. Mira Ferlin is Croatian with some Slovenian in her background. Uh, her husband, Serbian, 
and they left Yugoslavia before things started really getting bad in like 1991 or so. And JMS knows exactly what he's doing. He is um, he is setting up the Minbari conflict in exactly that same way. A federation of different castes that are that were pulled together sort of forcefully by Valen to force cooperation. And when the when the Grey Council was broken by the Lin, mm-hmm. you know, all of those uh, mm-hmm. all of those external uh, forces keeping them together started breaking down. And JMS is not above using some of that to get the um, reactions from his actors that he wants. I think that this is very conscious. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very agreed. And it makes for a good story, too. It's it's not like an empty empty move to to get good performances. It, it is something that very much follows from the events that we have seen thus far. I think it's just uh, being wisely and cleverly opportunistic with what he's got to work with and putting all the pieces together to come up with something pretty great. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it it kind of parallels too uh, the the whole theme of Babylon Five that we are seeing now and what is to come. The duration's going to be a lot longer than the war that leaped out at me because of yes, we've talked a little bit about this already. How the Shadow War was ended here at the very beginning of season four, and we've still got um, you know a season and two thirds to go. What the heck are we going to talk about now? Well, now we know. What happens after you've kicked over the anthill? What do you do to get things back into uh, a semblance of survivable order? Fighting is easy, young man. Governing's harder. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, and on that note, let's talk about what's coming up next time on the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, and then we'll jump into spoiler space. Uh, the next episode will be Conflicts of Interest. Oh, that sounds specific. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm thinking. You know, I'm thinking of all the conflicts that got set up here. Yeah. As, as you like, said. we haven't we haven't had any of those so far in Babylon Five. No, never. Yeah, um, Erica, you're hosting that episode, uh, so you may as well warn uh, Stephen ahead of time that uh, this is going to be, you know, another one of those uh, episode titles designed to underwhelm. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh but that'll be that'll be next time on episode 77 of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. Um hey, you know what? You can talk about these episodes with us and we'll even listen. We'll even respond. Uh we're on Twitter at B5 Audio Guide. We're on Tumblr at B5 Audio Guide. And we are on the web at b5audioguide.com where we have spoiler and spoiler-free threads uh for your participation. Any final thoughts before we go into the jump gate? No, let's end this. Well, that's the best segue into a jump gate that we have ever had on this podcast. Thank you, Erica. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm, I'm a ham at heart. I can't, I can't help it. Oh, uh, a ham after my own heart. Drock! Welcome! Introducing the Drock! Mm-hmm. Our big uh, bads. For, yeah, I was... Our big bads for next season and uh, for Crusade. Yeah, I was trying to like. I realized that I started talking about the, that. I remembered that the Drock, and then and then I ma- managed to backpedal and be like, "We're here. This is that that 
the race in this episode because I didn't want to forecast too much like that they're you know, I think it's pretty clear if you're paying close attention that yeah these are the guys to watch out for but you know I don't like to overplay my hand yeah um I we I don't believe that we see them we do not see them again in the fourth season if Babylon 5 had not been picked up for a fourth season a fifth season we would not have seen them again ever mm-hmm. um oh, right and but instead they wind up being the big bads behind um, a call to arms, and uh, and they are responsible for the fall of Centauri Prime. They much they, they become a much more specific threat, as opposed to just the nameless the nameless servants, dark servants who uh, future Londo talks about. Mm-hmm. Do we ever see an actual Drock? Because I mean, from the dis- description of this person, this, this was just an emissary. And and then we also get the is Drock your name or your race? Yes. Yeah. Do we find out any more about them in the future? I can't remember. We do. Um, it is a little complicated uh, because some of this is uh, in the novels and such. But we will see. Uh-huh. We will see unmasked Drock, who may or may not be the same kinds of. May, they may have. They may be the same people under those masks, or maybe different, um, different race. I don't know. Um, the some of the Drock do have names, um, but they are given the names in the um, like the Centauri Prime trilogy, written by Peter David under JMS's uh, supervision. Uh, I believe the mm-hmm. one who um, slaps a keeper on Londo is named Shiv Kala, but that's never on. That's never on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, and the, the, the thing that just kills me, uh, and this is this this is zipping ahead to uh, all of the drama behind the drama of uh, trying to get the spinoff crusade underway. They didn't care for the masks for the drop masks in this episode, as as we said pre pre jump gate, um, and we never see those these masks again in Babylon Five. Uh, the the Drock have full face uh, prosthetics um when whenever we see them again in season five they shot five episodes of crusade before the um, network got involved and had a lot of bad suggestions that turned out to not be suggestions uh if they wanted to get any more episodes of uh, crusade made and one of their requests was the the series would have begun in the middle of things no, we need a big, ham-handed, fighty, 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 fighty uh, opening episode. So the opening episode, War Zone, includes a fair bit of space battles and a fair bit of ground battles. And you see a bunch of these Drock emissary or Drock dudes with the masks on in the fight scene without any of the shimmering stuff going on. And they look just as bad as they as they would have it's just yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so in answer to your question erica yes we will see them again and we will see them like this but i think jms probably would have been just as happy not to have had to do that Mm -hmm. wow bummer yeah uh but you know um a couple of uh connections are made in this episode that really depend on knowledge that the, the the script writer and the audience have that the characters would not um Lanier makes the connection that the Drock came from Zahadum based on no evidence other than they recently lost their home. 
Uh, and they seemed super creepy. <laughs> yeah. oh, racist, racist, speciest. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and Marcus assumes that the keeper that they pulled off of Captain Jack uh, is an indication that the Shadow War connected with uh, what's going on on Earth. And we know that, but mm-hmm. there's got to be lots of mind-controlling parasites out there. It's a big galaxy. <laughs> I suppose. Uh, so, so that's 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 one of my issues. There although that, that okay, headcanon headcanon for that one uh, that it that might have been another not exactly lie but exaggeration simply to you know for rhetorical and oratorical purposes. Like you know he he was trying to, yeah. to convince if people. Marcus and make is trying an to argument, shake. So he was yeah shake their faith mm-hmm. in what they believe. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I could see that. Kind of along the lines of um, of um, Stephen you know, spouting off the way he did. Yep. Yeah. Um, let's see here. And the voice of the resistance, it makes its sort of prelude. It debuts next episode. When Susan Ivanova says, I hated it in response to, you remember when you were doing all this stuff? You know, that's not just Susan Ivanova talking. That's Claudia Christian. She hated the uh, oh, newsreader, no. the newsreader stuff. <laughs> yeah, Stephen. After after the episode was over, was just like, "Wow, they are desperately trying to find Ivanova something to do." Yeah. Now she's a newsreader. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, and I think that that just contributed to her decision to uh, leave the series. And and I know that it's sort of flailing. And I know that he had a plan for her in fifth season, but I can't blame her for being kind of impatient. This is a long stretch mm-hmm. of episodes before we get to uh, the fight with the uh, shadow tech infused Earth warships in which uh, she gets taken out and she has her um, dra- dramatic stuff at the end of the season. Uh, but yeah, yeah, she's going to have something to do. She's going to be a Greek chorus for the next few episodes. Yep. Yeah. Which I mean, I like. <laughs> so I'm sorry that she hates it so much, but I I love the voice of the resistance as a concept. At, 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 with her at the head of it, uh, I I just kind of find it delightful that one of the the people who is sort of the the prickliest when it comes to to character wise is the one that they put in front of the camera. Which it does kind of make sense because she. She's not good at dissembling. When she was doing this sort of thing before, you could see very clearly what she was what she was thinking. I mean, she's stoic, but she's not stoic in a way that she's got a poker face mm-hmm. when it comes to, you know, important things. Like she's not trying to hide her feelings about these sorts of things. And so I think she walks the line really well as a character and performance wise, even if she's not enjoying it. So I'm I'm looking forward to to her news reading career here. <laughs> And uh, the last uh, bit of post-episode stuff that I wanted to bring out was uh, number one and Steven. Uh, she will be brought back towards the end of season. She'll, she'll show up a couple more times here this season, I believe. But uh, she'll be brought back towards the end of the season, uh, of the fifth season. She'll be given a name, Tessa Holleran, and she will be given a new job uh, as uh, Garibaldi's replacement. Uh, running uh, counterintelligence for the Interstellar Alliance. Um, And she is part of that, makes me well up in tears every time she's part of that Mm -hmm. lineup of people along the uh, The bridge. The bridge of the new guard. Mm -hmm. Every every person replacing every old character on the show. And that's just like, "Uh." 
So that's times change, man. It's sad, but it happens. Yeah, yeah. But those are those are my uh, future forward thoughts. Do either of you have anything to offer to add to the pot? It feels like we're just getting the the tiniest window into just how bad things have gotten on Mimbar, with um, you know, Delenn basically having to you know help try to um, head off a civil war before it becomes a full-on war instead of this um, passive-aggressive uh, actions against each other. Just uh, the the feeling. I think this watching this time around more so. I was kind of feeling like, you know, damn, I know you had bigger things to do, Delenn, but you really should have been paying a little more attention. You were just on Mimbar like two episodes ago <laughs> and, and you didn't pick up on any of this. Really noticing it more this time around um, that um, the build up to that plot line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're really getting into the point where my memories are getting fuzzier. So, so I don't have anything else to add. I just, you know, I I remember the broad strokes and I get, you know, fuzzy feels when I see number one and Steven Mm -hmm. and I get creepy feels when I see the drock. And so, you know, I've, I've kind of got the, uh, the emotional attachment to all of these things, but, but less of these specifics, uh, in my mind for what's coming later. You're approaching the Byron event horizon is what you're doing. And then maybe I, yeah, and then there's, and then there are some things that I've blocked out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, and there's, I think there's another uh, part of that is that the Shadow War was so iconic and all this other stuff. When we were talking specifically about the Drog, um, you know, well, well, backing up a step, you know, the Minbari stuff is, it's political. It's, uh, there is no big bad. There is just us trying to uh, figure out how to, uh, how, how to live with each other again and that's not going to stick as much as a an iconic you know shadow war kind of thing the drug even in crusade when they're set up to be sort of the big bads the motivation at least in the aired episodes of crusade is you know save the save the planet from a plague not defeat the drug mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so Things I think get a little fuzzier in season in in the towards the end of this season and uh, season five because the conflict is so much more abstract and so more so much more convoluted. Um, there isn't a specific thing to just sort of hook into and grab onto. Mm-hmm. So it's not just you, Erica. I don't think. Okay! Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Oh, any final thoughts about lines of communication? I just remember a couple of times sort of, you know, feeling this, you know, this felt like, um, you know, we, we've talked about how we've been seeing tiny signs of, you know, Lanier's future um, issues. And here we get this episode where he is um, her second in command and they are in tune with one another and they are working as a great team. And I had several just like, oh, man, moments. Um thinking about what was to come with that so yeah he's he seems to be really on the ball when sheridan's not around mm-hmm. less i yeah less i uh and on that cheery note well, why <laughs> don't we why don't, why don't we pack it in and uh come back in a couple of weeks or f- sooner if you are watching this in this undiscovered realm called the future we will be back for episode 77, Conflicts of Interest, 
See, I'd even forgotten the name of the episode right then. It's so unmemorable. <laughs> See? <laughs> That'll be next time on the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. This is Chip and Durham. Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Well, we won't see you. It's a podcast. Thank you.